Hello, my name is Randy Lynn, and the Old Testament reading is found in Deuteronomy 19, 18b through 21. If it turns out that the witness is a liar, that the witness has given false testimony against his fellow Israelite, then you must do to him what he had planned to do to his fellow Israelite. Remove such evil from your community. The rest of the people will hear about this and be afraid. They won't do that sort of evil thing among you again. Show no mercy on this point. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Pam. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 12, verses 19 to 21. Don't try to get revenge for yourselves, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, revenge belongs to me. I will pay it back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. By doing this, you will pile burning coals of fire upon his head. Don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Mary. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew 5, 33 to 34 and verse 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven because it is God's throne. Let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We're gathered here in your presence, in your name, and asking you to speak to us. God who speaks, open our ears to hear what it is you have to say. Open our minds to understand, and most importantly, would you open up our hearts, the places where we may be cold or calloused or resistant or closed off in any way by your kindness and your goodness and the power of your word, would you open us up to your transformation that we might look and live more like Jesus. We love you and thank you in your name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. It's great to see you today. As people, we love to evaluate things. Some of us are just sort of constantly making evaluations about whatever all the time in our heads, sometimes even subconsciously. We do it at our work. Those of you that build things with your hands, you may be evaluating whether or not an angle is square or if something is level. For those of you that work in finance or accounting, of course, you're trying to make sure that everything is accounted for in the right way, according to the right formulas, and evaluating the books and profit margins and uh, returns, all of those things, we're evaluating them. For those of you that are teachers, you're constantly evaluating the performance of your students and how they're doing on a particular assignment. If you're a sports fan, they just evaluate everything all day, all the time. I'm a baseball fan, and we're the worst. 
Like baseball fans are just obsessed with every number possible. If it can be measured on a baseball diamond, we're going to measure it. And then we're going to compare it to everybody else that's ever played the game for the last 150 years and then make judgments about that. It's why the game goes so slow. It just gives us time to do more math. It's like, oh, wait. Another pitch happened. Okay, so that's pitch number 86. Well, that means... And we're just nerding out the entire time as we go along. We're evaluating those kind of things. And then we're also always wrestling with how do we evaluate the things that are harder to evaluate? How do we measure the things that really matter? How is it that we take stock or evaluate the things that are actually related to character, to relationships, to the things that actually are the most important things in life. As kids, we learn really early on different language for evaluating things. We have sort of an innate sense that when someone says something about us, our immediate response is, that's not true. I didn't do that. Or I didn't mean to. And we're evaluating truth in some way, even from a very early age. Or we evaluate justice. That's not fair. We have the sense of fairness that comes out in our words and trying to evaluate by what scale do we keep track of this? Is it simply about everybody having the same thing all the time or is there something else that goes on? And then evaluating love in certain ways as well. How much love do we feel? How much love do we give? Who do we give that love to? Who is worthy of love? Who is unworthy of love? And we have different scales, different measurements, different ways of considering scope that we apply on all of those things. And as the followers of Jesus, what our task is, is to learn from him how he measures those things, what his standard is, and allow him to evaluate those things in our own lives. Self-evaluation is a key component of everything that we do all around the world, but particularly for us as followers of Jesus, where we ask the Spirit of God to reveal to us what's actually going on in our hearts. And today we're going to be looking at some of what Jesus has to say about his evaluation of truth, of justice, and of love, and asking the Spirit to help us align our lives to the places that Jesus is leading us into. We're in our seventh week in a series through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words in Matthew's chapters 5 and 6 and 7. We're kind of at the halfway mark here through the series. We began at the beginning of the year. We're going to end on Palm Sunday right before Easter. So we're going to be switching into chapter 6 next week, uh, actually at Ash Wednesday and next Sunday, diving into the Lord's Prayer. Sarah will be preaching for us then next week. But we've said over and over again that this sermon is really Jesus' manifesto on kingdom discipleship. What Jesus is doing in and through this sermon is calling people to follow him in the kingdom way of life. I shared this quote with you at the very beginning of the series. It's from a man named Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite authors. He describes discipleship this way. He says, if I am Jesus' disciple, if I am Jesus' student, if I've made the decision to follow Jesus' path and way of life, if I am Jesus' disciple, then that simply means that I am with him to learn from him how to live like him. 
It's what we're doing here when we gather together on Sunday mornings. Everything that we do is a way of us putting ourselves into the very presence of God. We want to be with Jesus. Why? That he, we might learn from him how to live like him. We're coming to Jesus to learn how to live in God's in-breaking kingdom. Today, we're finishing up the third movement of this series, or of the sermon. The first movement is the movement where he pronounces blessing upon everyone in every situation, saying that the kingdom of God is actually available to all who will receive it. And then the second movement, he says to those who receive the kingdom, that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Not only has the kingdom come to you, but the kingdom is going to work through you. And then in this third movement, he begins to teach us what it means really specifically to live fully into God's way of life. And he interacts with several passages from the Old Testament where he takes God's law and he begins to reveal its full intention. Jesus says to us, you've heard it said this, but I say to you. Jesus isn't doing away with the law. He isn't canceling the law. He's actually showing us what the Old Testament was pointing to all along and saying, you thought it was this, but I'm actually leading you into something deeper and truer and more beautiful. The first week in that movement, Pastor Evan talked to us about how God's not only concerned about people not killing other people, but actually concerned about whether or not we're angry and calling us into a life of reconciling relationships, of pursuing unity with one another. Last week, I talked about adultery and divorce. That Jesus isn't only concerned about adultery, but he's actually concerned about the places in our heart where intentions begin to move away from the very will of God for us. Like Jesus cares about lust, about the purity of our intentions and our motives. And he doesn't only care about not getting divorced, but actually about maintaining fidelity and marriage and celibacy and singleness and living fully into those twin vocations that put on display God's kingdom in the world. And today we're gonna move into what Jesus says about truth, about justice, and about love. Three easy topics to tackle in one sermon that should probably go pretty well. We'll see how it goes. Begins 533. Again, You've heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't make a false, solemn pledge, but you should follow through on what you have pledged to the Lord. But I say to you that you must not pledge at all. You must not pledge by heaven, because that's actually God's throne. And you must not pledge by the earth, because it's God's footstool. And you must not pledge by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. And you must not pledge by your head, because you can't turn one hair white or black. That's your children's job. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Jesus here is interacting with some commandments, some laws in the Old Testament that arise up out of the third commandment that God gave to Moses while on Mount Sinai. The third commandment to the people of God is to not misuse the name of the Lord their God, the God who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So don't misuse his name. And one of the ways that they were acutely aware of how God's name might be misused is when people would make a vow or an oath or a pledge or a promise in God's name and then not keep it. 
And so Leviticus 19 says, you must not swear falsely by my name. Because if you swear falsely by my name, you're actually desecrating it in doing so. I am the Lord. In the ancient world, and even to some degree in our world, names were synonymous with character. That you could have a good name or you could have a bad name. This was long before Bon Jovi gave love a bad name. This was just, you know, sort of a standard sort of sense. We even think of it in our judicial system. Someone's trying to clear their name or someone has a good reputation or a bad reputation. And one of the concerns for the people who follow God is to not give God a bad name. And what happens is when we swear in God's name, and then we go on, we break the oath or the vow or the pledge or the promise that we made his, his name, it actually suggests that God's unreliable. It suggests that God's unfaithful. That because we're bringing and invoking his name in that moment and carrying his name as his people, that if we actually don't keep the promise made in his name, we desecrate it. And so the Israelites, they got really creative. They're like, you know what we can do? is we, there's a way around this. Instead of swearing in God's name, let's just start substituting in other words. Let's swear by heaven. Let's swear by earth. Let's swear by Jerusalem. Let's swear by the hair on our heads or our chinny-chin-chins. And what they started to do is creating these sort of escalating scales. Well, I swear by my head. Yeah, but will you swear by Jerusalem? Oh, Yeah. I'll swear by Jerusalem. Well, will you swear by the whole earth? Yeah, I'll swear by the whole earth. Will you swear by heaven? Yeah, I swear by heaven. And escalating these sort of ways of making sure that this is how seriously that I'm taking that. But what was happening in practice was they realized if they swore by those things and they broke it, they're not breaking a vow made in God's name. So no harm, no foul. We can say all of those things and still be within the law and actually say those things and have no intention of keeping it. And what was happening was that words were becoming meaningless. And these kinds of oaths and promises were actually becoming manipulative. They were ways of trying to get people to trust us or to believe us or trying to get ourselves to believe or trust someone else by asking them to escalate this in some way. We all know what this is like because we all did it on the playground at some point. Do you swear? Oh yeah, I swear. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Or the all-powerful, will you, will you pinky swear? <laughs> yes! Because nothing seals a promise quite like two small fingers joined together in harmony. Like we would do these things to try to convince people to believe us. And sometimes saying that with having no intention of actually keeping it. And Jesus says when this happens, our words become like the words of the evil one. The words of the enemy in the garden who twisted and manipulated words in order to lead Adam and Eve into sin and to despair. There's ways of manipulating and twisting words. And Jesus says, no, not so with us. Not so with me and not so with you. Not so with the people of God. 
that all those things that you're swearing by, he says, don't swear by heaven or by earth or Jerusalem or by your head because they're all gods anyway. You're trying to get around this and you're not. God owns them all. They're all his. He cares about them. Nice try, but God's not fooled. Instead, just let your yes mean yes and let your no be no. Tell the truth. Be honest. Keep your promises. Let your word be reliable. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, then he requires honesty in speech. That our words are actually reliable. That our words, as much as possible, align with reality. Align with what is actually true. Jesus' words on this topic were as revolutionary now as they were then. We now live in a world where we're not sure what word to trust from anyone at any time. We live in a world where it's a world where it's common to talk about fake news and false advertising and spin and gossip. And we could go on and on and on and on to about things that have been augmented or things that have been spun or things that have been changed. We also live in a world where the most common way for us to use words may mean maybe to exaggerate or to escalate, to actually take what we're trying to say and say it to a greater degree, to a greater strength, to add more to it, to such a place where we're not even sure we can trust what words mean anymore. That rather than describing something with a level two word, we go automatically to describing it as a level eight or a level 10. And something that was hard becomes something more. And our words have begun to lose their meaning. Not only that, but we spend a lot of time trying to weaponize our words. That our words are no longer used primarily to bind us together, to help us to know one another and to be known by one another and to create opportunities for connection and our words are no longer about an exploration of trying to figure out what is true instead our words are used to villainize and to shame those that we disagree with even in the political sphere it's no longer the best ideas that win the way that we evaluate how someone wins a political debate is the one who lands the most one-liners the one who has the most zingers the one whose clip goes viral and gets the most likes and the most shares because if the clip goes viral and gets all of these likes and all of these shares, then those words must be true with no context for what actually is being said. And Jesus says to his followers, to you and me, not so with us. Tell the truth, simple, honest truth and speak the truth in love. Speak in such a way that demonstrates that you're for truth and you're for the other person. That you're actually concerned about aligning life with reality and caring for and loving the people that we're speaking to and that we're speaking about. Jesus says that his people should be marked by those who tell the truth and keep their promises. And those who accept blame or responsibility when they realized, oh wait, that wasn't true. I was led astray. I'm so sorry, let me make that right. Or I intended to keep this promise and I didn't, I failed. I am so sorry. Rather than people that just pass blame onto other people. Jesus says we should be the kind of people 
that pursue truth at every level, particularly with our words. This, of course, raises all kinds of ethical dilemmas and controversies to, to wrestle with. Maybe the clearest one was Christians during World War II who were hiding Jews from the Nazis, wondering whether or not it's, whether it's okay to lie in order to save someone's life. Having to wrestle with what happens when two values, when two virtues come in conflict with one another. But for most of us, that's not the conflict that we're wrestling with. Our temptation is to use words to save face, to protect ourselves, to actually just save our life in some way. But to follow Jesus is to walk in the way of truth, which means having true speech. So Jesus requires honesty from us, teaches us and leads us in the way of truth. The second area he talks about here is the area of justice. It says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. Like, wait, what? <laughs> Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. What are you talking about? And then he says, if people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. And when they wish to haul you to court and to take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't rejoice with those who want to borrow from, or don't withhold, refuse those who want to borrow from you. You're like, Jesus, certainly somebody wrote this down wrong. <laughs> Like, that, that can't be what you're saying. What, what are you trying to get at Jesus? Don't you care about justice? Don't you care about those things? He's actually interacting here with Old Testament laws that are about commensurate justice. In the ancient world, particularly ancient Near East, things were often very vindictive. There was a lot of vigilante justice going on. It was very common for people to escalate any sort of minor violation, you know, cut me off in traffic and we're going all the way to 20. <laughs> Becomes a vigilante sort of justice moment. It's common, you know, you killed my cat, so I'm gonna kill your cow. Well, you killed my cow. That's not equivalent to my cat, so I'm gonna kill your bull. Well, if you kill my bull, I'm gonna kill your oxen. Well, if you kill my oxen, I'm gonna take out your whole herd. And all of a sudden, we've gone from a cat to a herd. That's not commensurate. The killing of the cat was kindness. <laughs> ah, sorry, cat lovers. I just had to make sure everybody was with me. So these laws come in in the, in the Old Testament all around. Even the Code of Hammurabi talks about eye for eye, tooth for tooth kinds of things. These laws were meant to curb this practice and set a, calm, uh, set a standard within the justice system that actually becomes standard even for us, that punishment must fit the crime, that it must be commensurate. So the language was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We now, instead of swapping eyes and teeth, tend to do this more financially or with imprisonment, those kinds of things. But there's a sense that develops that justice must be just. Justice must be fair. But what happened was that a really strict adherence to this left no room for mercy, left no room for forgiveness, left no room 
for anything other than trying to even the scales. Deuteronomy 19 even says it this way, show no mercy on this point. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, cat for cat, whatever it happens to be. We, have that. We, we get this, we have our own language, like get back, get even, settle the score. Alexander Hamilton demands satisfaction. The supertones fight back. Whatever it happens to be, whether you're into Holly, you know, like uh, musicals or just old school ska. It's all there. And then Jesus comes around and he says things like, don't resist the evil one. Don't resist the person who's treating you unjustly. Don't resist in this moment. Don't get back in that way. We're like, wait, Jesus, this, this can't be right. This can't be what you're calling us to. What are you doing here? There's a couple things. The first thing he's being really intentionally ambiguous at one part. He says, don't resist the evil one. Earlier in the passage, it says anything, anything more than speaking your yes and your no comes from the evil one. He's typically talking about the enemy. Even in the sermon or in the prayer, deliver us from the evil one. So who's he talking about here? Is he talking about the devil or is he talking about the person who's doing wrong to us? And he's probably talking about both. Because behind every evil act, behind every evil situation, the enemy is lurking somewhere in the midst. So Jesus is telling us not to resist that person. And we go, like, do you not care about justice? Does this not matter to you? Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not the case. I'm trying to teach you another way. And what Jesus is teaching us is a way of life that requires creativity and justice. Because in that creativity, it leaves room for things like mercy and forgiveness. And we see it in these very culturally specific situations. Here, the first one he gives us is, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek... If they're going to slap you on the right cheek, what that means is someone's giving someone else the backhand, coming and backhanding against someone. Typically, where this would have been allowed in that world is in situations where there's a clear power dynamic, where someone could legally slap someone who is their possession. They could slap someone in some way, but it was a deep insult to that person's humanity. Even the situation of the relationship that would allow socially to say that's acceptable shows that something has broken down in fundamental human relationships. Jesus is not talking here about people staying in abusive situations, by the way. The teaching of Jesus here is not to continue to endure abuse if that's what you're experiencing. That's not what he's talking about. Some about the particular situations within this culture where someone's insulting another person. And he says, instead of slapping them back, what I want you to do is turn to them the other cheek. Well, why, Jesus, why would you tell them to turn the other cheek? They're just asking to get hit again. Why would you do that? That's actually not what Jesus is doing. As you turn them the other cheek, in order for that person to hit back means that they're gonna have to hit you like an equal. And that power dynamic suddenly is shifted. And it causes that person to have to see the person that they just hit as another human, as somebody on the same level with them. And you know what happened? That person would go, Wait a minute. I don't know what to do here because what you're demanding from me is to see your humanity. 
You're demanding to be treated like an equal, and I'm, you didn't even use words, you just turned a cheek, and all of a sudden, that person who is demeaning and insulting someone else, that person by a very simple act says, I'm not going to let you demean me or insult me. And by their simple acts, their own dignity has been raised to such a point where the other person is now aware of what they're doing. That if they're going to hit again, it's going to require them to give someone honor, give them dignity in that culture. And what it does to them suddenly is it exposes their pride, exposes to them what they're doing is unjust, exposes to them their own capitulation in an evil and unjust system. And all of a sudden, they're confronted with their own reality in the way that most likely would cause them to stop and maybe cause them to repent. In the first century, people wore two pieces of clothing. We call them here a shirt and a coat, but it was an undergarment and an overgarment. And it was legal to sue someone for their undergarment. And what was often happening is that those who were rich were exploiting the poor and suing them for their undergarment, but you couldn't actually take their outer garment for any lengthy period of time because someone needed that to sleep. It was how they kept warm. It sort of doubled as their sleeping bag or blankets. So you could sue for the one, but you couldn't sue for the other. So here someone is going and unjustly suing someone to try to get their undergarment. And Jesus says, here's what I want you to do in that situation. Instead of filing countersuits, give them your outer garment too. Why? Because then your nakedness exposes their greed. If they're sitting there all of a sudden holding two garments, one in which it's illegal for them to have. And what do you think happens in that moment? <laughs> Take your clothes back. Please put them back on. That that very act causes them to confront the reality of the system that they are capitulating to and causes them to sort of take stock of what it is that they have just done. It's incredibly creative in that moment. Roman soldiers, they could legally force any person living in the empire to carry all their equipment for one mile in any direction over any terrain. Come up to anybody at any point and say, you have to carry this for one mile. And everybody had to do it. It was the law. But it strictly forbade them from going any further. They could not ask someone to go two miles. So Jesus says, hey, if somebody asks you to go one, I want you to go ahead and go two. Because when you start walking that second mile, everybody in their company and their overseeing officers go, what are you doing? They suddenly think that that person's breaking the law. <laughs> and that person is now suddenly in trouble because what you're doing is you're exposing the injustice of the system that would even allow this to begin to happen in the first place. And so you're like, I'm going to go too. And that person's going, stop, stop, stop. Give me all of that stuff back. Don't do it. Because your second mile is exposing what's actually going on, the injustice of the system. And they're going to be so terrified that they're going to be accused of law breaking. They're going to take everything back and probably never ask you again. Because they don't want to get called out. Suddenly, it causes them to open their eyes and leaves room for repentance. All three cases, in all three cases, it's highly likely that the evil one here, the person doing the injustice, will never do it again because of the way that suddenly their 
brought into the reality of what they're doing. What Jesus' creative actions do here is that they end violence and end injustice without actually resorting to violence and injustice. Jesus' teachings are very culturally specific and there's a lot of nuances there. But what he's showing them is a creative way of bringing about justice in the midst of an unjust world. Historically, these passages motivated some of the most significant movements we've seen in history. Creative nonviolence, like the movement led by Martin Luther King Jr. for civil rights in the 60s. As his group of people said, we're going to refuse to actually result, respond to violence with violence. Instead, we're going to do these things that subvert the system and expose it for the evil that it was. Inspired by these texts. Of course, there's all kinds of other ethical questions that come up, all kinds of tensions about, well, what do we do about this situation, about government and authority and all of those kinds of things that we don't have time to get into today? But what Jesus is inviting us to consider is how are we personally responding to injustices that are done to us? It's a different situation we're talking about when we observe injustice, injustice being done to others. But when injustice is being done to us, is our first response to strike back, to leave no room for mercy, no room for forgiveness, or by the Spirit of God are we discerning what may be a creative response that actually reveals the injustice, turns it on its head, and maybe if that person is open and willing, brings them to a place where they stop, or maybe even repent and learn to live in a different way. Jesus then goes on and says, you have heard it said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that harass you so that you will be acting as children of your father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good. He sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward you will have? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you greet or welcome or show hospitality to your brothers and sisters, to your family, what more are you doing than anyone else? Even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, just as your heavenly father is complete, or in some translations, perfect, in showing love to everyone, so also your love must be complete or perfect. Leviticus actually instructs the people of God to love their neighbors. That's an actual commandment found in Leviticus 19, love your neighbors. But nowhere does the Old Testament say to hate your enemy. And once, not there. It gets implied from other passages and people began to pick up on this. Some of Jesus' contemporaries even said it. The Essenes, that community that wrote all the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of their teachings, it says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate Rome in this case. What those teachings do is that it limits the scope of love. It says that love is reserved or it's held or it's given only to a particular group of people. That love becomes restricted to family and to neighbors. Love becomes restricted to a very homogenous group. In their case, only to other faithful Jews to those who look like them and talk like them and think like them and believe like them and vote like them and walk like them and work like them and talk like them and do everything else like them. That those who are exactly like us 
then those are the people that we love. And love was narrow in scope. And then Jesus comes in and says, hey, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to follow me into way of life, then I require totality in love. Not this narrow, defined group that we love them and we hate everyone else. Jesus says, no, I say to you, love even your enemies. It's the most revolutionary thing Jesus ever said. It is the height of his ethical requirements. Knowing what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus into the way of enemy love, of loving our enemies. Sometimes the only thing that we can do is to pray for them. So says, love your enemies and pray for those who, who harass you. Sometimes we can't be closer than that. It's unsafe for us to be in their proximity. But most of our enemies are people that we can actually be in relationship with. They are ideological enemies. They are our political enemies. They are our theological enemies. They are people that we frame as enemy because of the way that they think or live that is different from us. And Jesus comes in and commands us to be generous to those folks. Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. Jesus tells us to even be sacrificial in pursuing their good, to pursuing their well-being, to actually treat them like they are neighbors. That's how Jesus lived. He was constantly setting a table for people he shouldn't. Those who were considered his enemies, those who would even betray him, those who would kill him, he was constantly inviting to a table. Come and eat with me. 2,000 years later, Jesus' teaching is still so challenging and so revolutionary. For us, we recognize that we're very good at drawing lines. It's like our superhero talent, our superpower. It's like we can just keep drawing smaller and smaller and smaller circles. Circles that we use to identify who's in and who's out, who's faithful and who's not who's like us and who's not, who gets it and who doesn't get it, who is good and who is evil. And we continue to exclude and limit our love based on how we draw those circles. What tends to happen is the longer that we live, our circles get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And then we use those circles to justify treating our enemies in all kinds of dehumanizing ways. Treating them with anger, treating them with contempt, doing the very things that we were talking about early, earlier, villainizing them, shaming them, using our words as weapons. And Jesus is not so with the people of God, that we're to be marked as those who love even our enemies, who the line of the circle that we draw about who is worthy of the Father's love includes everybody. That we say as the people of God, we're gonna do our best to love everyone, how are we drawing those circles? What are the circles that you use? What are the circles that I use? And what are the ways that we evaluate who is worthy of love or who will give time and love and resources to? Jesus here does not ask us to agree. He does not ask us to acquiesce, to support platforms that we don't believe in. He doesn't ask us to do any of those things. But he does command us to love. And he says that perfect love is love that goes all the way out to our enemies. So who do you consider your enemy? 
What does it look like to love them? Maybe all it is is a prayer right now. Maybe it's an invitation to the table. Because at the end of the day, what we're reminded of at the end of every service is that Jesus' habit is inviting enemies to his table. Jesus not only requires the totality in love, Jesus reveals the totality of God's love. Jesus reveals to us just how wide, how deep, how true, how everlasting, how broad is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. As Micah and the worship team and Sarah come forward to this table, what we're reminded here every single week is the proof of God's love for us, which is that while we were sinners, while we were God's enemies, while we set ourselves against God, while we wanted nothing to do with him, we wanted to do things our own way, and we wanted to be the arbitrators of our own ideas and sense of what's right and wrong and good and evil, and we said, God, we don't need you anymore. He prepared a table. He invited us to come. And he said, I love you. Would you come sit with me? Would you come and eat with me? Would you come into my presence and come to know the love of God who causes the sun to rise and the good and the evil, the rain to fall and the just and the unjust, who gives himself to the righteous and to the unrighteous. We, God's enemies, are invited to his table every week. So this isn't just a table of um, the justice and love of God. It's also a table that invites honesty about our response to God. I, the sermon made me think of my favorite, um, and it's a more modern day painting of uh, the Last Supper. And in the painting, it's from the perspective of Jesus. So you don't actually see his face. You see his hands holding a cup. Um, and you can kind of see his reflection in the cup, but all you see are the faces of his friends at the table, and they're all reacting differently to what he's offering. There are some who look almost shocked or afraid. There are a couple who are clearly distracted or talking to each other. One of them is looking at Jesus like this. You see Judas slipping out in the back of the room. I wonder if as we approach the table today that this, this exhortation from Jesus could also be an invitation to honesty within ourselves of how we are receiving the love of God today. Because this is Jesus's table. Every single person here is invited to receive here regardless of your church background or your affiliation. If you don't believe in Jesus as we believe, thank you for coming and for choosing to spend a Sunday morning here in, in this worship service. And we encourage you to keep coming, keep exploring, keep asking questions about this Jesus who says some wild things, did some wild things. If you are ready today to believe in Jesus and to follow his teachings, maybe this is a decision you're making for the first time in your life. 
Would you join with us as we, following the screens, confess our sins? We, we get honest with God about who we are and who God is. Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. It's my joy this morning to announce good news to us, words that are true, not because I or someone else would be saying them, but just because of what God has done. So would you open up your hands and receive again the mercy of God. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, and that's what proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and the peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. As those who've been raised to new life with Jesus, would you please stand and greet those around you and share the peace of Christ with one another. More peace, more peace, more peace. As we come back together, you can follow along with the liturgy on the screens. Jesus is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is, it's a good and a joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, because you formed us in your image and you breathed your life into us. And when our love failed, your love remained steadfast. And when we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. On the night that he was gonna be handed over to his enemies to suffer and to die, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and when he had blessed it, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after the supper was over, he took the cup of wine and after he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you drink it, remember me. And so God, in remembrance of your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim together this mystery of our faith that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. All of us, who are in Christ are part of a priesthood of all believers. So would you stretch out your hands and join me in um, praying over these elements, blessing them and giving thanks for them. God, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us? 
and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and the blood of Christ so that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Jesus, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Jesus returns in final victory and we see him face to face, amen. I'd like to invite the servers to come up now and receive these. Friends, these are the gifts of God and they are given for us, the people of God. So receive them in remembrance that Jesus died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. In just a moment, we'll come forward to receive. Beginning in the front of each section, you'll exit to your left, everyone who's able to come forward and come down. Uh, if you're in the balcony, you can join this section on the right or there's some prepackaged elements on the table. If you're unable to come forward, please do ask someone near you to bring some elements back to you. If you're not receiving, please go ahead and come forward just so nobody trips over you and then you can just pass the servers by and return to your seat. If you are coming forward, come with your hands open like this. The first server is gonna take a gluten-free cracker, dip it into a cup of non-alcoholic wine and offer it to you, put it in your hand and you can receive it right then and there or you can take it back to your seat and receive with those uh, that you came with. If you'd prefer prepackaged elements, we have those available. And if you'd like a napkin, we have some dispensers as well. There will be two stations, so please go back and forth between the two. After we've received, our ministry teams will be available in the front to pray with you. Did you come here with something burdening you that you wanna be freed from? Did you come with something to rejoice over and you'd like to share it with someone? Have someone witness the joy of your life. These teams will be here to pray with you. Let's worship together now as we come to the table.